Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I will say without any question, the number one concern we have from people who listen to this podcast is how they can deal with the anxiety in their children. It seems that we have had either an enormous increase in childhood anxiety and OCD, or people feel less capable of handling the amount of anxiety that may have been there previously. But to talk about it, I am so grateful to have an expert who is a child psychologist at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Stephen Whiteside, and he is also the author of a brand new book called Anxiety Coach. Dr. Stephen Whiteside, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So is your estimation of what I just described the same in your practice? You're seeing more parents that feel ill-equipped to be able to handle this crisis? Your observation is spot on and the reasons for it are also kind of the way we see it as well. Anxiety disorders have always been the most uh, common form of uh, mental health issues in kids. Anxiety and depression have been getting worse over the years. That's just skyrocketed after the pandemic. And also, you know, uh, we're all more in tune and willing, which is good, willing to talk about mental health problems and realizing that they exist in kids. So all those factors contribute to seeing lots of kids with anxiety and OCD. You know, there was a lot of talk during the pandemic about which is worse for kids to expose them to the virus or to suffer what we're going to have is the long tail of a mental health crisis that you have to be able to watch for years subsequently. Why did the pandemic worsen kids' mental health? Most likely because of the isolation. We obviously don't know for sure, but the essence of an anxiety disorder is being more nervous, worried, or afraid of things than we would expect, than other kids do. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all have different levels of anxiety. There's nothing wrong with being an anxious person. I'm somewhat of an anxious person, but it becomes a problem when you avoid the things that you're nervous about because then not only are you not doing those fun things and those important things, but you also have an experience to learn that it's not so bad. Mm. And with the pandemic, for unfortunate and very good reasons, we had to isolate. And so if you were sort of a shy kid who had gotten by, but then after a year of really not seeing any other kids, or maybe you saw friends, but not kids you didn't know, you felt pretty nervous, mm. more nervous than you used to going back. So I think that enforced avoidance just not all kids, but you know, tip some kids over the edge in terms of making anxiety a problem. I also just notice in my own life, the number of seven, eight, nine-year-olds with their heads completely in their phone, their reality suspended because they're attempting to try to get information about how to live their life from their Instagram scroll. And I wonder what impact that has on kids' anxiety level. Yeah, I know. To be to be honest, we don't we don't actually know. Um, And if we're going to talk just from a research level, it probably a good summary of the research now that for most kids, social media is is not particularly harmful. But for kids who are already vulnerable for whatever reason, it can be very damaging. Mm -hmm. But I also think from another just from a general level, I mean, you think about your own childhood and your peers become so important and what they think about you and whether you fit in. When we were kids, you could check out of that. You could go home 
and there was very little contact. But now it's just constantly there for evaluation. Um, if, if you're being teased or bullying, that can just continue. And you can have just, it's right there in your face at home. There's no respite. Um, but just the general, like this you know, fear of missing out. All these pictures of people so happy. We all take social media. Let's put a let's put a like parenthesis around happy, right? Yeah, everyone everyone looks so happy. Perceived exactly. Yeah, Yeah. they look like they're doing stuff with other people, and you're like, well, why aren't I'm not doing that? So you feel left out quite a bit of the time, and you have to like, am I getting enough likes? It's a lot of pressure. You're on a lot more than you would be if we uh, got to just kind of unplug and and be at home with our families and not have to worry about peers for a few hours. One of the things that I hear from so many people is how desperate they are to get help for their kids who are showing stomach disorders, they're picking at their skin, they may be self-harming. With girls in particular, the anxiety turns into eating disorders. And the ability to get a child psychologist in this country is almost like winning the lottery. What is being done right now to increase accessibility to the kind of professional care that you offer? I would say there's probably a lot of discussion and there are a lot of good faith efforts, but it's it's a daunting problem. And once again, you hit the nail on the head. There really are three barriers that prevent kids from getting help. The first is only about half of kids with a mental health problem ever get identified. And that's probably particularly true for anxiety disorders where these kids are generally, you know, they're quiet, they're trying to stay out of the limelight, or they're very nervous about making a mistake. So they're working really hard not to come to anyone's attention. Mm-hmm. So they're less likely to, to be identified than maybe a child with ADHD whose activity level is, is stressful for everybody. Many kids, or if not most, don't get identified. Those that do are fortunate enough to be identified by their parents or a primary care doctor, only about 20% of them ever make it to a professional, which is what you're you're discussing. There's, there's not enough mental health, let alone psychologists, but mental health professionals in general. And then the piece that really has always invigorated me and frustrated me so much is that of that small proportion who actually does get to see a therapist, only about 20% of that care is actually evidence-based. Is so if you've made it through the gauntlet to get to a therapist, there's a good chance that you're not getting the best treatment that science has made and research has made available. So one thing that people are trying to do, of course, we often look to technology. Is there ways that we can use technology to spread uh, the availability of evidence-based treatment? Can we train more people? And I uh, get the good old-fashioned way of writing a book and yeah. saying, you're trying to educate everybody. This is the best way to treat kids with anxiety. It's it's treatable. Here's what you can look for. Here's what you can try on your own or just one attempt to try to make it more available to everybody. And thank you for offering that because it's hard to take time from a practice that's probably as busy as yours to actually gather your thoughts, create a book, edit a book, publish a book. I've done it. Let me tell you, it's no small feat. So thank you for that. What did you put in the anxiety coach that you think is essential that people know both about determining if your child has a rate of anxiety that needs to be addressed and also what you can do to actually help? Yeah, there uh, there are three sections to the book and we tried to try to lay it out just to be uh, accurate and honest to reflect what we actually do in practice. I didn't want to put anything in there that is not as close as possible to the actual words that we say to our patients. Um, And so the first part of the book is identifying an anxiety disorder. The second part is treatment, uh, what exposure therapy is, what treatment looks like. Then the third part is putting those two together. How do you specifically pursue treatment for each of the different anxiety disorders? 
So let's start with how to identify. I, I think that it's what one of the things that's so difficult is this is different for every age group, right? You, you can't really use the same identifying tools on a toddler that you can on a nine-year-old. So what are some of the ways that we can think more broadly about identifying if the child is really in trouble? That's an excellent point and, and a good question. And and there's two ways to to approach it, and, and they both are important, and, and we talk about both in the book. One is defining an anxiety disorder by looking at behavior and actions and kind of how it functions and how, and how it works. And the second is looking at it from a diagnostic labeling standpoint. Mm -hmm. So the first is that an anxiety disorder is when kids are more nervous, worried, or afraid than we would expect. Mm -hmm. And really the most important thing we're looking there is kind of the more than expect. If a child is in a stressful situation where most people would be nervous and anxious, so that's not an anxiety disorder. And we treat those things very, very differently. I like to use the example of a fear of dogs, probably because when I was a kid, I loved dogs, but I was terrified of them. Mm -hmm. If you're afraid of your neighbor's golden retriever, it's a wonderful dog. It's nice to everybody. It gets a little riled up and because it loves you know, to be pet so much. If a child's afraid of that dog, they probably have an anxiety disorder. They're more afraid of other people. But if there's another neighbor who's got a dog that's not well-trained and has unfortunately bit people in the past and everyone's wary around that dog, that's not an anxiety disorder. That's a stressful situation. And the reason that's so important is that the treatment for anxiety is helping kids face their fears, learn their own experience. It's not as bad as they thought. Whereas if there's a stressful situation, we either try to fix it, you know, have a fence around the dog or avoid the situation. We don't go down that street and cope with it as best as we can. So what you're saying is um, trying to determine within the realm of parenting, like what is excessive, like mm -hmm. what is that it that seems to be an unusual fear. I'm going to give you an example of my four-year-old, uh, a stepdaughter. She started having anxiety. She would be sick. She couldn't eat. And then she couldn't go to school. And when we drilled down to what the fear was, she didn't want to get on the bus because she was deathly afraid of throwing up. Well, when we worked with her to actually get her on the bus, she did throw up. So her greatest fear became actually now a compounded fear because of the embarrassment of throwing up in front of everyone else. So I want to know in terms of exposure therapy, how you counsel people about how far do you go to encourage the kids to face the fear and do the thing that they're most afraid of? What a great question. I didn't realize that you were going to be asking challenging questions. <laughs> I would have put a little bit more time to prepare. I, that, that, that's, 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 why, that's why doctors love to come on this show. <laughs> that's a, a wonderful question. And let me, uh, so you know, let me try to kind of pick that apart. Uh, and beforehand, the concepts we have and like the different categories and ways of thinking about things are all very neat and clean in the abstract. But as soon as you start working with kids and their families, those principles are still really important, but the shades of gray become dominant. Yeah. So the first part is, is I love what you, what you described is that she was afraid of going to school in general, mm -hmm. um, but we didn't stop there because we had to understand why she was being afraid, why she was afraid to go to school and identifying not only that it was the bus that she was afraid of throwing up is exactly the way that we that we need to proceed just to understand because some kids are afraid to go to school because they're being bullied and mm -hmm. there's a big difference between kids are being mean to me so I'm afraid to go versus everyone's nice but I'm super shy because I don't, might make a mistake. Right. Fear of throwing up is a nice example 
rein me in here if I get a little too technical. And no, abstract. please, you can't be too technical yeah. with us. Because it's not really a fear of throwing up because nobody likes throwing up. Nobody wants to throw up. The problem is that kids or teenagers or adults are afraid of safe things that they mistakenly believe will make them throw up. So they're afraid of eating too much, or they're afraid of a stomach ache, or they're afraid of going for a walk after eating or afraid of riding on a bus, because most likely it's not going to make you throw up, but they think it will. Mm -hmm. So when we plan an exposure treatment, we don't make kids purposely throw up. We never make kids do anything because we're not able to do that. We strongly encourage them and, and guide them along the way. Yeah. But so the fear for a fear of throw, throwing up is like, what are the activities you're afraid to do because you think it'll throw it up, but probably won't? Mm-hmm. Riding a bus, eating before you take a bus, kind of, kind of pushing, pushing your fear, like really testing it. I'm going to eat more than normal. Then I'm going to do some jumping jacks and see if I throw up. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense before I tackle the hard oh, part? A- absolutely. Yeah, okay. I'm following. Yeah. 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 There's two things that we're learning with exposure therapy. The first is what I'm afraid probably won't happen. Kids probably won't start laughing if I stumble over my words. My parents will probably pick me up on time when they drop me off. I probably won't throw up when I have a stomach ache. The dog probably won't bite me. And we say probably because we never guarantee safety because the world has an inherent level of danger. Mm-hmm. And we never do exposures. We never promise everything will be fine. And we probably never do exposure to things that are actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Probably even more important is learning that you can handle it, handle feeling nervous, and you can handle things that don't go well. And the yeah. best example is social anxiety, because we stumble over our word all the time, have uh, awkward pauses, people say things that are sort of uncomfortable. And so our fear does come true, but it's not as bad as we thought. Mm-hmm. With your stepdaughter's example, Throwing up on the bus is not the end of the world, but that's pretty, pretty bad and pretty mm-hmm. embarrassing and not something that happens often and not something we would ever want to happen. Right. So hopefully we would have approached it in a way that we made it clear that, yeah, your fear may come true, but what we're going to learn is whether or not we can handle it uh, so that we had done the groundwork so that when it did happen, she was able to say, yeah, that was bad, but people didn't laugh at me or right. this or that happened. It was actually not as bad as I thought. That would be the ideal situation. Right. I think that asking kids who will share with you their deepest, most vulnerable fear, asking them to do that very thing is so hard for parents, especially if you just want to be a bubble parent. Everybody wants to be a little bit of a helicopter and make it easier for their kid. And yet the data does show that those who are encouraged to face that fear and go through it do much better than those who don't, correct? You're exactly right. It's not rocket science. Everyone sort of can sort of, you know, you fall off the horse, you got to get back on. Everyone sort of understands you should do things that make you nervous. On the other hand, like you mentioned, it's completely counterintuitive. We spend a lot of time in the second part of the book explaining what exposure therapy is, explaining why it works, explaining the history of exposure therapy. It's been around for a long time, going through the steps of how you do it and a chapter completely devoted to the parent. Like this is what you're doing as a parent. And in our clinic, one of the things that makes us distinct from other practices is that we always work with kids and parents together, Mm. together the entire time. We all need help. And if we're going to ask kids to face their fears, they're probably not going to do it if they're left to their own devices, but they've got a much better chance if their parent is there to help them. And kids are going to go to their parents when they're anxious. And so the parents need to know how to respond in a way that helps the child build confidence over time. And just like kids learn from their own experience by facing their fears, 
parents learn from their experience by working with their kids, not me telling them it's going to work, but seeing it for themselves. My child was nervous. They touched those germs. They gave that speech again and again, and then they were calm and felt so good about themselves. I now as a parent feel better that I can do it. Well, you've also just touched on something which there seems to me to be um, a genetic link with anxiety disorders and that the the hypervigilant anxiety-ridden parent often has modeled some of the behavior for the kids without even knowing it. Unfortunately for my daughter, that is indeed the case. Mm -hmm. Well, everything is genetic. Height yeah. is genetic, eye color, personality traits, anxiety. So there is a, a portion of just passing it on. But as any, any parent who has more than one child knows how different kids can be. So just because you're an anxious parent does not mean your child is also going to be anxious, but there is a better chance. Mm -hmm. Kids learn from their parents, uh, mm -hmm. from what they directly tell them and from what they observe. And if um, I, I just saw this recently and I, and I see it often with kids with OCD and and they're washing their hands a bunch and parents are like, well, some of this might be my problem, my fault, because since the pandemic, we've been insisting that everyone wash their hands as soon as they get in the door and this or that. And everyone's doing their best to take care of their kids. But if you see your parent being anxious and avoiding things, then you sort of assume that that's the way you do it. And there's probably a good reason and you feel anxious and avoid them as well. So the frontline uh, medication for anxiety disorders is still benzos, right? I mean, anti-anxiety is essentially benzodiazepine, right? I will answer that question, but I just want to make everyone clear that I'm a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm yep. not a medical doctor. I don't do the medication piece. But so the frontline medication for anxiety disorders are uh, antidepressants. Um, They're using selected. antidepressants more than than mm -hmm. uh, benzodiazepine. Yeah. Wow, that's so, so interesting. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are sort of the classic medications uh, that are used, and there are other newer and more variants. But the, the main difference uh, for people to understand is that a benzo works immediately. You take it and you feel like a physical calming, whereas antidepressants are medications you take it. And for the most part, you don't feel anything. Yeah. And gradually over time, they kind of build up in your system and they kind of quiet down probably anxiety, but also kind of general other negative emotions, depression and irritability and, and frustration. And is there any is there any long-term studies about what happens to kids who are put on SSRIs and maybe with the additional benzo for, you know, dramatic events in the long term? Are they fine? Is there is that okay for them to be taking those powerful drugs that early? That is a very good question that it would be really nice to have some research on. Mm. I, I try to do everything I do, I try to be directed by research and the evidence that's available. The frustrating things with mental health, child mental health in particular, it's just not enough research to answer all the very valid, important questions that we have. I'm also a psychologist, so I'm trained in, in behavioral intervention. So, so in our clinic, our general approach, our biases, what we understand of the, of the research literature is there's a very good chance for any given child that a behavioral exposure-based treatment is really what's gonna be most effective and sufficient. So let's start there. And if yeah. that's not enough, then let's look at medication because I don't want to discourage people from getting medication, especially if that's the only option you have because they are helpful. Yeah. And I have seen patients over the years where in retrospect, it's like, yep, medication was an important part of that treatment. But for the most part, people, kids can work very hard and make a lot of progress 
just with behavior therapy. One thing that we are realizing more and more is that taking an antidepressant for anxiety is rarely a short-term thing. Mm-hmm. We did a study where we looked at kids newly diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, put on medication, and we followed them as best we could because kids get older and leave you know, leave the health system. And five years later, 75% of the kids were still taking a medication for anxiety. So I think it's really important for parents to keep in mind is that yes, medication may be necessary and important part of the treatment, but it's not, I'm going to take this till we get over it. Then we're going to stop. It's probably a long-term thing and research in adults, which is mostly uh, adults who have depression, they've been, you know, taking it for 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a long-term prospect. We've been talking with Dr. Stephen Whiteside, um, author of The Anxiety Coach and also a psychologist at the Mayo Clinic about children and anxiety. And I want to ask Dr. Whiteside if you'd be willing just to hold on and talk to us more a little bit about OCD and also what happens with kids who tend toward anxiety around the holidays. You game for that, Dr. Whiteside? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about nothing more than OCD. 